This episode is made possible in part by Donate Pizza, where dough does good. Um, I recently had an episode with Angelo Corso, and he's been partnering with at least 50 pizzerias in the city. And collectively, he and his volunteers are able to donate pizzas, quality pizzas, some of them are even gluten-free and vegan, to the homeless shelters in Chicago. If you're interested in donating or volunteering your time, please check them out at DonatePizza.com. That's D-O-U-G-H-N-A-T-E Pizza.com. Cheers. This episode is made available in part by Chicago EMT Training. As an EMT, you'll gain the ability to recognize and manage any medical illness or traumatic injury. It's one of the best ways to get your feet wet in healthcare. You can be working alongside techs, nurses, PAs, physicians, paramedics, and firefighters. Chicago EMT Training hosts a class every fall, spring, and summer. Visit ChicagoEMTTraining.com if you're interested. I am Consciously Curious, a podcast for those that are searching for a career or cultivating meaning within their own space. We've had anesthesia providers to barbers, dog behaviors to airline pilots, white collar to blue collar, entrepreneurs to passion projects. Life's too short to not produce meaningful work. Join me, Victor Chan, as we deep dive within various industries. I'd love to hear your feedback, so feel free to leave a comment. I hope you find some value within these conversations, but more importantly, I hope it sparks a meaning within your own space. Our next guest is a full-time board-certified neurosurgeon and clinical professor of neurosurgery at the Chicago Medical School. She is one of roughly 200 board-certified women neurosurgeons in the United States. Her journey is an example of purpose, discipline, and determination. She had an early interest in neuroscience, but her initial interaction with a neurosurgeon through her mother's aneurysm pulled her into the path of neurosurgery. She's precise, philanthropic, and someone who appreciates a challenge. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sherry Dewan. Dr. Sherry Dewan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Victor. I'm really excited to be here and talk to you um, about the book and many other aspects of my life. I think I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of takeaways from this um, in the sense of how you manage to balance, which is a common question you probably get, is like how you man- manage to, to juggle all the things that you are doing, whether it's, you know, daughter, wife, uh, mom, <laughs> and then the jobs, you know, whether it's teaching, whether it's the clinical aspect, um, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Um, I think a uh, few words that come to mind are perseverance and, and harmony after I finished um, the book. And uh, at the end, I almost got emotional. Uh, I, I don't usually get emotional, but like I... Um, when it came, the full the story came full circle um, of uh, you finding out that Dr. Johnson uh, uh, passed away. Who was the physician that worked on your mom when she had an aneurysm? Um, and uh, I wanted to, this is going to be cut short, but I, I wanted to read something from, uh, from the book to the, uh, to the listeners. So in the timeline of things, um, this is when uh, you were ending, you finished uh, your residency uh, at Brown um, with one of your mentors, Dr. Cahill, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you're, you're saying your goodbyes, um, and this is what he says. So, you are done. 
I want to tell you some things about our profession that you must hear and that you must know. We are flawed creatures. We make mistakes. We are human. We are also vehicles of God on earth that have been given a very special and unique gift. What you do with your gift is your decision. Never think about this as a job or a paycheck. It's so much more than that. What you have been trained to do is so impactful. Do good work. Yeah. Yeah. That was my last conversation with him. I mean, since then, I've, you know, I've seen him. Um, but, you know, that rings true for so many aspects. Yeah. And, you know, as you know, in healthcare, we've been through a whirlwind in the mm-hmm. last couple of years. We've been through COVID. We've yeah. been through, you know, there's been so many barriers to practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've really held true to that belief that we have a purpose mm. and we have a gift. Yeah. And, you know, it takes a very long time to hone the skills and hone the gifts. And, um, you know, it's not a job mm. because you're operating on people. You're saving people's lives. Um, I've been personally affected by neurosurgery with my mother's life being saved. Um, and, and the irony of it is that her surgeon has now left this earth. Mm-hmm. Right. And she's still alive. And so the work that he did continues to live on. And I find that really profound. And I, you know, I hope that. I can do the same thing for other people's families, you know, mm-hmm. with the gifts that I have. And so you know, there's been many times where, you know, I've been disillusioned in my own career and said, you know, what am I doing? You know, what is this for? And um, I come back to those words that he, you know, that he told me when I graduated. And, um, you know, I go back to my mother's story and I look at her mm-hmm. um, thriving, you know, in her 70s with yeah. all of her grandchildren. And I think, you know, this could have been for naught if she had been in a place where there was no access to a neurosurgeon. Yeah. In fact, some, some of the first symptoms that she'd had of the headaches um, happened to her while she was traveling in India. Mm. And I think often... How long before the, like, the, other, the additional headaches came on after that? It was probably going on for about four months. Wow. Yeah. And in fact, she was in India when she remembered she had a very, very severe headache. She thought she was going to throw up. She had gone into the bathroom at this hotel. And I think to myself... Thank God that she was in the United States Mm. when it happened and she had access to a neurosurgeon who knew what he was doing because, you know, she was in some remote village in India at the time and it was, you know, 20 years ago. And and you've done charitable work out out in India. I have. I have. So I have a collaboration with Mm. the hospital system out there. Um, And so I go out there every few years and I'll do pro bono cases. Um, you know, adults, kids, um, people that would travel across the country to come see you in this two week window, right? It's a two week window (laughs) and they line everyone up. Um, you know, one of the downfalls and one of the things I need to do that's on my to-do list is I need to learn how to speak South Indian dialect, which is Malayalam. (laughs) I speak the North Indian dialect. So that has put me at a disadvantage, um, with the patients, but you know, so I, I've been able to give back. I was in the middle East operating, um, you know, different situation, not as much for charity, but, mm. you know, I think that this view of the world um, and looking at the world is actually a lot smaller than how I viewed it maybe 20 years ago. Mm. We're so interconnected. And, you know, I think with the gifts that we have, you know, it's so important to share that gift with the world and to teach and to train people to do what we do mm-hmm. and to show them that we enjoy what we're doing. You know, because yeah. that that I think is key too. 
there's so much disillusionment in healthcare and medicine now. Um, and you know, people always ask me, you know, would you tell your own children? <clears throat> I have three kids, and it's a hard question to answer. You know, because I look at the landscape of it, and I see all of the obstacles and the obstructions. But on the other hand, I see what I've been able to do with my own career and how mm-hmm. incredible that's been for me. What, what was the common question that you would get about your what, what, with your kids? Um, most of the time, you know, I have two daughters and a son. Yeah. And most of the time, people would ask me, would you tell your daughters to go into medicine? Mm, okay. Because of the career path and surgery and, you know, all of the obstacles that are wrought for women who want to have kids. And, sure. You know, and sometimes I'll tell them, you know, my older daughter is clearly more business minded and I think that's where she's going. But my middle one has expressed an interest in neurosurgery. And so what I do is I take them to the hospital with me and they round with me and they meet patients. And, you know, when they're 16, they're going to go into the operating room and I want mm-hmm. them to see it mm-hmm. and be a part of it. And they, they can decide for themselves, you know, what they want to do. That alone is a huge advantage to, to know someone. I've, I always felt like trying to get observation or volunteer hours were was such a hurdle uh no one in my family was was in medicine um i didn't have like a neighbor or anything like that it's you know i didn't grow up it wasn't until probably post-college where i understood the value of networking um and then these days in the emt class i would get students with the sole intention of networking and they're losing sight of the inherent value of learning something for the sake of learning something and they're just trying to get another notch on their belt and try to make their resume as resilient as possible, which should be a side effect of doing good work. Yeah. So, luck, I'm, I'm, you know, your, your kids are, I'm sure, super grateful for, for that. And all we can do, I think, when I'm a parent one day is uh, provide all the opportunities, right? Yeah. And, and I think, like I said in the intro, what's so um, interesting about your journey is your ability to balance and take care of your your own, your family, as well as give back. Do you feel like you have to wait until you've reached a certain level of mastery in order to give back? Or have you, have you, you've probably given back along the way in any form? Yeah, I think I really started giving back when I was in practice about five years. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, I was board certified. I had all three of my kids I was at this place where I felt like I could give the knowledge. I had the bandwidth to give the knowledge and take on students. Mm -hmm. And that's when a lot of women students started coming to me saying, I want to be a neurosurgeon, but I don't know how to do it. Mm. And there's not, there's so few of you. I mean, at the time, you know, right now there's 219 board certified women neurosurgeons in the U S so we're, you know, 6% of the field. And at that point, I wasn't very involved with women in neurosurgery, you know, organizationally. I was kind of just, you know, trying to understand my own footing in the world of neurosurgery, Mm -hmm. five years in practice. And these students started coming to me and asking, like, you know, I'm terrified of going into neurosurgery. I want to be a mom someday. I want to get married. Like, what did you do? And um, I had had this book that I was writing and writing and editing and writing. And I started writing the book when I was a resident. Wow. Was it, did it start more of like a journal or was it? It was a journal of stories, basically, which is the incredible experiences that were happening to me. And I had never read a book like that. You know, I Mm. I was a bit, I'm a huge reader. Mm. I had never read a book about a woman neurosurgeon who was trying to be a mom and trying to be a wife and trying to be a good surgeon and going through this training phase 
And when I got pregnant with my first daughter, Amara, I very vividly remember this episode I had, and I wrote about it in the book, about where I had morning sickness and mm. I was doing a craniotomy. I, that sticks out in my memory too. And you know, and when it happened, I thought, oh my gosh, like I've never read a book that described this. <laughs> and so I started writing these stories in a journal and I just collected, and they were handwritten and I collected them and collected them. And then here I was, all of a sudden I blinked an eye and I was five years in practice and I had all of these volumes of, of books and I had also voice memoed myself. Nice. So I had almost 2,000 voice memos. <laughs> so I thought, what am I going to do with all of this? You know. And then um, a friend of mine said, well, why don't you hire a transcriptionist? So I hired this woman, and she literally took all of the written and voice data and typed it for me into a Word document. Mm. And then I spent the next two years kind of shifting things around and, and creating kind of an arc, character yeah. arc of, of the book. And then, you know, then I had it and I thought, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> you know, and then kind of almost by accident and serendipitously, if you will, I ended up meeting my literary agent, whose mm. name is Colleen O'Shea, who's this incredible woman. And she was really the one who helped me get a publishing deal and really get the book out into the format that we see. Mm. So I think it was hard work, but it was also probably a little bit of luck. Um you know, being at the right place at the right time and having some of those connections. Yeah. Um, so that's really the story, you know, and I, I, I think um, in so many different ways, it at some points, you know, I felt like if I never get the book out, it's okay. Mm. Like it can sit on my computer, it's fine. You know, COVID happened. I had a really hard time getting a publishing deal. We had a deal it almost, and it fell through. Um, and I guess I could say no, it was with Harper One imprint. Mm. And um, and then it sat on my computer for two years. I had no idea what to do with it. And then my agent, Colleen, was like, listen, I think we need to take it back out again. And that's when we got our book deal and kind of moved forward with it. Did you consider self-publishing? I did think about it. Um, I just didn't feel like I had the necessary marketing and media aspect to it that the publishers do. Yeah. So I felt like I, I could have very easily self-published it, but then where would it go? So it has to be read. It has yeah. to be seen. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's worth its salt though. Uh, it's, it's a profound book. It's a quick read, but I think there are so many little takeaways in here. And I think the first half, uh, really emphasizes cultivating a purpose. Now I'm sure, have you thought about what would you be doing had you not experienced the trauma or had your mom not experienced the, you know, the aneurysm? Yeah, I think, you know, I had always wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I think yeah. her situation solidified it for me, but okay. I do think I would have gone into neurosurgery. Okay. I do. I just think it would feel differently for me, yeah. you know, because the times in my career that I have always felt disillusioned, if you will, or, or felt like, what's the purpose? Mm. I have the purpose you know, and she's there with me living and breathing. And um, for me, it always comes back to the patients. And it sounds kind of corny or trite, but it's about them. I mean, it's about when they come to my office yeah. and they're feeling better and I've helped them. And, you know, recently I've had this opportunity to operate on people I know, 
you know, people who mm. I know are coming to me for their surgeries. Mm. And, and that's actually even more meaningful because those people I see out in the community, mm. I see them at the barbecues and the picnics and the parties and the school events. And, you know, I can watch them thriving. And so those longitudinal patient relationships are really what do it for me. Because I think as a surgeon, it can be very transactional. Mm. So, you know, you come to my office I review your scans. This is the problem. We go to the operating room. We fix it. And then I never see the patient again. Maybe mm. I'll see them a handful of times. Yeah. But the longitudinal relationships always have really fueled me because those are the ones where I can really see the difference long term. So that really keeps me going. And I think that's been a huge purpose for me. Um, and then the other thing is learning, you know, learning new things. Um, a couple years ago, I started integrating robotics into my practice, mm. robotic minimally invasive spine surgery, which was something I had only seen at conferences, you know, and once I integrated the robotic platform into my practice um, and started doing my fusions minimally invasive, that really drove me to want to excel with mm. that technology. So I think the two things for me, really, the patient longitudinal relationships, the practice knowledge, technical skills, those two things have always driven me. Um, are there any, there's so many different conversations in my head. Are there any ethical conversations with like working on people, you know, there definitely are. Yeah. I mean, and in some ways it's, I hope this goes well <laughs> because yeah, I'm going to have yeah. to see them all the time. Right. <laughs> um, but I think it took me, to a point in my career where I felt 100% comfortable taking on somebody mm. I knew, you know? And, and so in one family, my, one of my best friends, I've operated on both of the grandmothers in that family. And then I get to see them mm. at events, at book club, at parties, at school events. And they both, you know, and to hear them and their feedback for what they experience is just, it's so touching and so powerful in a way that, you know, I don't get to experience with a lot of other patients because... I don't know them personally. You know? have, have there been any conversations about out-of-body experiences while you've been operating? I have had one patient tell me she was awake during the surgery for a period of time. Um, and I know there's literature out there to support that with mm. anesthetics and so forth. But she said it was, she could hear us mm. in the very beginning and then that was, oh. you know, that was it. So, <laughs> you know, but out-of-body not classically. You okay. Know? Okay. Like, you know, and then mention things that they have, they wouldn't have known if, if they weren't awake, you know, that has not happened to me in my practice, but yeah. I have seen a patient and, and this is where the mind boggling nature of the brain comes in. Mm. You know, I did see a patient when I was in training who was clinically brain dead mm. and she'd had a brain aneurysm rupture. She came in as a grade five subarachnoid hemorrhage and we did all the brain death testing on her. We literally did all her brainstem reflexes, the cold calorics, everything. Mm. And we're at the point of declaring her officially brain dead. And she woke up. And it's one of the most mind-boggling things that I've ever seen in my career. You know, how you go from that to being wide awake. And I can only explain it by potentially maybe she'd had a massive seizure Mm. that kind of knocked out everything, but still. Um, so I feel like I've seen just some incredible things and s incredible survival stories. It brings into question, like, at what point do you actually stop trying? 
as a provider. Yeah. Right. Because we deal with that all the time, you know, especially in the EMT world. Yeah. You know, so, um, I mean, I definitely, there's, there's mysticism Mm -hmm. that I've become (laughs) more open to as I've gone through the years, you know, and, and one of the things that happened to me very early on in my life was I used to spend summers with my grandmother in India Mm. and, um, she introduced me to this yogi Mm. and I was about 16 years old and he started taking me through these exercises of almost like a visualization meditation or like really what he was teaching me was transcendental meditation. He was was teaching Mm -hmm. me TM Mm -hmm. at at that age, but he didn't call it that. And that really helped to kind of guide my thinking. It kind of gave me goals. And then I went through actionable steps on how to get those goals. So I think that that kind of mysticism that was there culturally for me early on Mm -hmm. has kind of carried throughout my life. And, you know, I, I strongly believe everything is as it should be and will be. And, you know, if one door closes, I really feel like another one opens. And I, and that's happened to me so many times throughout my life that, I mean, I truly believe that there's purpose, intention, fate, but also perseverance and determination. Yeah. It's, it's tough to, think about that when you're actually going through something super tragic, right? Uh, like when is this next door going to open? <laughs> but I think at, at the, you know, this is a, the stoicism in, in me is just like this too shall pass. Yep. Right. And it's, uh, you know, as, as a friend or a family member trying to support, you know, someone else trying to go through hard times. Um, sometimes you can just be there to listen. Yeah. Right. Um, I've heard a lot of students feel like they're not going to do well in medical school interviews because they don't have something like they don't have a traumatic experience to draw from. So if, if someone lived a pretty mundane life, um, how would you advise them to cultivate that sense of purpose? Because I don't, they can't, it's hard to empathize the day to day relationships with their patients in each cat like specialty. Yeah. Right. So when 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 someone who's a senior in high school or an under or a freshman in, in undergrad says they want to be a cardiothoracic surgeon or a neurosurgeon, um, I don't think they know what they're really signing up for. And I, I think it's it's so admirable to to have these concrete goals. But what advice would you give them to find out if it's truly what they want to do? I would say get into the OR, you know, get, find somebody who's going to take you on as a shadow, spend time in the hospitals, you know, like one of the things I did was I spent my summers in the hospitals, even Mm. much before I was even in medical school. Mm. I would, you know, one summer I worked in the SPD, the sterile processing department, Mm. wrapping trays and putting them in the autoclave. And I learned all the surgical instruments, you know, and, um, you know, you don't need a, you don't need a cert for that. Certificate? No, it was literally just a <laughs> summer job in college, you know. And I said, I want to be in the. I just want to be at the hospital. Yeah. I just want to see what goes on, and and you know, and basically just wrapped all the trays, sterilized them, you know. <laughs> that was the summer, and you know, get into the get into the hospital, meet people. Are you like them? Are you witty? Are you? Is it the same humor? Is it? You know, mm. some of the first neurosurgeons I met. I just knew it was for me because mm. we had the same kind of dry sense of humor. Mm. It was, you know, you'll know when you find your people. Mm-hmm. 
And, and, but is it, do the cultures shift at per um, specialty or even like, does it shift even within each hospital system? I think probably a little bit of both, but I think there are common threads. Okay. Okay. I mean, now, you know, I've operated in so many different hospitals throughout so many different health systems and been on staff at probably over 15 hospitals. And I do think there is a common thread in neurosurgery, you know, um, you may have some variations up and down a little bit, but the personality type is pretty consistent. Mm. So I, I think that, you know, when you find your, your people yeah. and I would encourage anyone who's unsure to try to get into that specialty with those people, you know, now it's so easy with social media, mm. you know, back when I was at this stage, I didn't know how to contact a neurosurgeon. Yeah. I didn't know any neurosurgeons. I didn't even know where to begin. I mean, now it's, you can literally, you know, go on to Instagram or LinkedIn or any platform, identify who you'd like, mm. send them a message. And I've had so many students contact me through that and many of them wanting to get involved with women in neurosurgery. And I've put them in through the, through the, you know, the pipeline to mm-hmm. get volunteer positions and things like that. So, I mean, I think it's so, so much easier now than it used to be. What, uh, if someone were to pursue the the cold emailing, I feel like there's a better way to do it in the sense of just not asking for an opportunity, but wanting, what type of value should, should they propose, um, to make it worth their while? Is there anything that they could propose to make it, to make it worth the mentor's while? I think, um, some of the things are research opportunities. So mm. people have reached out and said, Hey, I'd really love to be on a research paper that you're writing or, um, a clinical paper. Mm. And so some of those students I've taken on and, mm. um, you know, because there's always papers to write, you know, mm. we see things all the time and we just don't write them because we don't have time. And so you get a good student in there who, you know, wants an opportunity or oh. wants to apply and get a first authorship. So I've taken on some research students that way. Um, recently I've become involved with a global organization. Mm. Um, I'm on the scientific advisory board. So now we're taking international students. Oh, wow. Um, that's more to fund their education, but also provide opportunities. So we're looking to basically take students from underserved parts of the world, fund their education, and give them access to training in the United States. Yeah. And the hope is that they take the training and the skills, and then they return to their home countries to build neurosurgery programs. I would love to do something like that with the EMS. There's so much opportunity. I mean, we are so global. We are so interconnected. Um, now more than ever, I mean, you know, there were times in my career I wanted to do something like this. I just didn't have all of the moving parts in place. And we finally do. Wow. You know, we're doing conferences. We're going to conferences in Saudi Arabia and Qatar and uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi. It's um, meeting colleagues that Mm. do what we do, bringing robotic spine surgery there. So there's just so much collaboration, I think, that didn't exist, Mm -hmm. you know, many years ago. So. Um, also through the first half of the book, you described many obstacles that you had to face, um, whether they were directors of residency programs or even like just examples of not wanting to show weakness in, in the OR. Um, the morning sickness one came, came to mind. Like, have you gone back to that and just like what, even like now as a, as a practicing neurosurgeon, like what happens? Like if someone shows weakness, I think, I think this next generation is more open to communicating at least about what they're going through, 
right? And and relating to each other. And and when you when you start to talk about it, you realize you sh- more people like relate to you. Yeah. In that way. Yeah, and I think it's you know it's interesting because I'll talk to you know, women neurosurgeons or women who want to go into neurosurgery and they'll ask me about maternity leave and things like that. And, you know, with my first daughter, I mean, I took off six weeks Mm. and there was no maternity leave policy. I wrote the policy. They didn't have one. You know, they had never had a resident that (laughs) there was no policy, you know? And so, you know, and with my, with my son, you know, I I had basically had two weeks off, you know, in the book you said four, I think. It was somewhere between two only to four. Two? Yeah. I was I like, mean, only four? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing because people look at that now and they're like, that's insanity. <laughs> you know, because that's just not how the world is now. I mean, now, even for women residents who are pregnant, they get, you know, a nice, I, you know, a nice enough chunk of time off. Um, so, you know, I think I kind of came through the fire at maybe a time where it was less popular to be a neurosurgeon or less, there was less conditions or less, I guess, you know, people just assume. Yeah. Okay. That less you pathways, were going to yeah. just tough it out. And, but, but I think one of the dangers in the profession, and I, I'll say this across the board, mm. not just neurosurgery, but across the board is I think sometimes, you know, the expectation that you're going to be able to show no weakness and you're, you can't show fallibility is what drives people to, many things like alcoholism and drug abuse. And, you know, and I've seen, unfortunately, many ask, many people in my career, mentors, people that I've, you know, really looked up to as super incredible, brilliant surgeons who have fallen off of the pedestal because mm-hmm. they've driven themselves so hard to success. And that's been a big takeaway for me, watching some of these people throughout my career and knowing that, I needed to have a good balance in my life. You know, yeah. I mean, you can't just be the super successful surgeon, researcher, and then your whole family life is falling apart, yeah. you know? And so for, and so for so many, that's what I did see Yeah. or the opposite, <laughs> you know? So, so I think that really, that really helped to allow me to find the harmony, find the balance Look at the things that drove me. What what am I passionate about? You know, and I'm yeah. passionate about teaching. I'm passionate about global neurosurgery. I'm passionate about bringing opportunities for students in underserved areas that don't have them. Mm-hmm. And you know, this concept of even in like a place like Chicago. I mean, taking a child that needs an education mm-hmm. and sponsoring them mm-hmm. for that education and having the ability to do that and think about like the trajectory of their life and what you're going to do with that person, you know? And so that really inspires me at this point in my career is really planning roots. Giving back. I think you described it in the book is that right. Just like planting at roots. a tall tree, but like seeing what's under the, the, like thinking about the roots of that tree and like how many people, how many touch points were involved in helping that tree grow to as tall as it can be. Absolutely. And I feel like, you know, I stand here now as a product of all of these people that have poured their love and their affection and their education into me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, from a spiritual mysticism standpoint, you know, Hinduism, we always say, and it's always a belief that at this kind of third stage of your life, mm. you give back. Mm. And that's when the kind of you've made it and now it's time to give back to others. And so I feel like I'm kind of in that stage right now mm. um, with the book and with so many other things that, you know, I'm involved with. And, um, 
it's a good place to be, you know, because yeah. I didn't get there on my own. I got there with a lot of support and a lot of direction from many people. On the flip side, um, that director of a residency program that, you know, outright told you that, you know, this field neuro of neurosurgery is for, I don't know if he said white male, but definitely said male. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were just like dumbfounded, like at a loss of words. And he showed you the door. All you did was walk out. You're like, what the heck just happened? Yeah. Alex was, you know, your husband was dumbfounded. We were like, what? Like no one can speak like that. And realizing that, you know, Alex has never had to experience something like that. That, that being said, I keep thinking like, why do these attendings not like like all not like all attendings, but like why do attendings pass down that generational trauma to their residents? Yeah, I think it's one of these abusive situations where, you know, they've been abused and so they pass it down the line. And and I think it's a bad cycle, to be honest. You know, I mean, in some yeah. ways they I think they believe it makes you tougher, it makes you stronger. And like one of the things I hear now is, oh, everyone is so soft. Mm. Right? Mm. The residents are so soft and Maybe that's true, but, you know, on some level, I still think they're very well trained. Mm -hmm. You know, I still think they know right from wrong. I still think they have values, Um, you know, and the world is a bit different than it was, you know, 20 years ago when we were going through all the training. Um, I think we all went through a lot of trauma back then that maybe we don't always talk about or bring to light. I've definitely met with other women neurosurgeons who are kind of one generation up from me. Mm. Um, who are still dealing with the, you know, things that they experienced in their residency and trying to find a place for those things. Um, what would you like to see? I, even like I, I remember you saying Dr. Kale never really opened up to you until the very end yeah. of your residency. Um, are there moments, it's tough, it feels cutthroat at times, but like are there moments where you can be candid with your peers and your superiors in residency? There's opportunities, are there opportunities to just be vulnerable. I think yes and no, you know, and I think it depends on your program, quite honestly. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, many of the neurosurgery programs are not soft, kind, gentle places. I Mm. mean, they're places where, you know, when I started at Brown, the program director, who was the the general surgery program director, because that's how I started in, had said, we're going to pound you into hard steel by the end of the training, (laughs) you know? And and by the time I was done with the training, it kind of felt like that, you know? Um, so you, I mean, you do, but, but do you need to be so hard in order to be good, Hmm. you know? And that I think is a key question. Um, you know, I've met some brilliant people in the field that are softer, kinder, gentler, but are still very focused on quality of care and patient Mm -hmm, care, mm -hmm. you know? So I don't think you necessarily have to be pounded into hard steel to be good. I think what it does do though, is it does make you tough. You know, and you do see such a variety. I mean, you know, being on call for 36 hours, you know, you put your body through, it's a different level, you know, of, of, of work and, um, you're, 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 you're mentally fatigued and then you're physically fatigued. (laughs) It really, I mean, it's really, and I I will say this now because I've been in the field long enough, like sleep is a basic human, right? (laughs) Yeah. You yeah. Know, well, I mean, what does that say about patient care if you're sleep deprived? Well, and that's and that's the thing, you know, it's what mistakes are we making because we're not focusing or we're, right. you know, we're in the operating room at two o'clock in the morning. And so why can't there be more room for residents? Why, why is there such a shortage of residency 
placements? I think a lot of it's just kind of controlled by, you know, the ACGME and these yeah. organizations that limit the spots. Um, it's not the individual programs? It's not the individual <laughs> programs, yeah. It's what? actually, yeah, it's actually regulated by the ACGME that, that, that regulates. Oh. So it's really not a programmatic, it's how many you're allowed to take. <sighs> That's so backwards to me. Yeah. Uh, because you have to have the number of cases to support the graduate. I, okay, I understand yeah. that. I understand that. So what if, if there were more placements, each resident wouldn't get the quality experience that they need to be in a, a, you know, a great attending. Right. The case volume. Yeah. Yeah. So. And no one would want to do more years, more than seven (laughs) years. I think seven is enough. (laughs) Dr. Uh, uh, I don't know if you know Dr. Stephen McGill, but he said the same thing. He's like, it's tough to, like he's like looking back, he's grateful for the seven years um, because there will come a point where, you know, people will rely on you to fix their loved ones, um, and you want to be the best you know provider you can be. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Is there anything else like if you were in a position to, and and you are in like the day to day? I think you have you had you had a profound impact on the medical student that fainted in the mm-hmm. OR, um, and. The, the softness and the gentleness like of, hey, it's okay. And, the, and, and you taking the time to listen, um, something that I'm sure they had to work up the courage to even like talk to, um, will leave such a profound impact on that. But is there anything else you would change about the process about becoming a neurosurgeon? Yeah, it's a hard question, you know. Um, I think... I've learned to kind of put a lot of the things that bothered me about the training and what I went through with the pregnancies and so forth mm. into book form, mm. you know, and, and because that's my catharsis, that's way, the way of me writing it down. Um, I think the field has just incredible, brilliant, gifted people, mm. but the field also has um, a lot of it very arrogant and pompous people. Mm. And, um, and I think that's our problem as neurosurgeons. It's that we don't open up our hearts enough. We open up our minds, right, mm. all the time, right? We're examining patients, we're discussing surgery, but we don't, you know, open up, we don't have that warmth factor. Many, many neurosurgeons I know don't have the warmth factor to patients. And that's, you know, I think women neurosurgeons, I actually have a lot of female patients, but a lot of male patients too, because they can be vulnerable sometimes. They can open up about what's happening with them. Yeah. And yeah, I was I was going to ask like what what does a female perspective bring to the to the specialty? I think it's different. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I think I spend more time with my patients. Um, I'm told I listen to them more. Mm. You know, I've been in rooms where I've examined patients or I've talked to patients with my colleagues. Sometimes mm. it's a different conversation. It's a different feel. And I think many times when I've seen male neurosurgeons speak to patients, it's more dictatorial. It's more, this is what we're going to do. And, Mm. you know, but I feel like when I speak with the patient, it's more conversational. Yeah. Yeah. It's a discussion. It's a discussion. It's what do you think is going to be a good avenue for you? And here are the options for you. Okay. So it's just, you know, a different feel, I think. Um, And I hope that the career and I hope, or hope that the profession you know, becomes more open-minded about having dialogue with patients rather than it being, this is what we think is a good idea. This is what we're going to do, you know? And 
I think that's most pre-medical students' perspective of wanting to get into this industry is just like wanting to help people. And I, I, through this EMT class, I try to help them make an informed decision on if healthcare is the vessel that they want to help people through. Because any many industries can help people, but do you specifically want to help sick people and specifically in maybe the pre-hospital sense or the ED? Um, and then through that is a stepping stone into meeting other specialties and things yeah. like that. Um, I think two of the things that if people read this book um, could potentially change the specialty, um, maybe implementing maternity leave <laughs> for other for other yeah. residency programs, um, as well as maybe implementing a uh, meditative timeout pre-surgery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you, I think you mentioned it in a podcast. Um, is that a, a consistent ritual or kind of just like, was that a one-off thing that happened with you? It was a one-off. Oh. Um, yeah. Now, I will say though, I am a huge believer in everybody kind of having a collective hive mind, if you will. Yeah. Um, On what we're here to achieve. What we're here right? to achieve, you yeah. know. I mean, I think it's, you know, if everybody were to take a, you know, we do our timeout, right, for the patient. We, we talk about the procedure. We talk about the laterality. We talk about who the patient is. If we all were to take, you know, one minute and just in our minds or together collectively say, we're here for this patient to do so-and-so's operation, to do an excellent job for her or him, yeah. you know, and then let's dive in. And um, I think that collaboration is so important that we're all in it together, mm. you know, because at the end of the day, we really can only rely on one another, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, so I think I'd like to implement that <laughs> moving forward. It's a great idea, Victor. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I think, I mean, so uh, I didn't tell you pre-recording, I, I do, I'm an anesthesia tech at Northwestern okay. as well. Um, I don't I don't see the the meditative uh, timeouts too often. Um, the, the standard timeouts, but uh, which, you know, does its thing. It gets everyone on the same page. But in the spiritual sense, um, there's something special about a little close your eyes and head down and just kind of everyone's on a similar wavelength, I think afterwards. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, but on the flip side, I think you still continue to do some type of meditation for yourself though. I do. I do. I'm a huge believer in meditation. I do a lot of yoga. Yeah. Um, I do other things too. I mean, I, I'm a runner, um, I swim, but I think the yoga and the meditation have been really consistent for me and things that I've carried through in order to balance the stress and you know so, bring yeah. the harmony to my family and so that I'm in the right mindset where I'm not coming home you know stressed out from the day so I feel like you know when I walk in the door I try to be you know the wife the mother all yeah. of those things and I try to leave the stressors of what took place in the workplace behind and you know I still work at it, it it's it's a constant balance um it's hard especially with i mean with social media and stuff um i think when you when we talk about balance in this episode and as as it should be in every sense of the word is you're not you're not sacrificing you know or you're not giving 50 percent to work or 50 percent to your kids or to alex or to whatever i think what you mean is you're fully present in whatever you're doing at this very moment in time um, and when you're not there, you do your best to be present on something else. Yeah, that's really what it is. Did it's, that come naturally to you? I worked at that. <laughs> I worked at that, you know, because there's so many distractions. Yeah. And, um, but also I think 
deep down knowing that you can do it all. Like you Mm -hmm. have to have this idea that you can, because if you start thinking you can't, then it's all going to go haywire. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I mean, you have to have the mentality that I will be able to achieve all these things. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm going to be able to achieve all these things. And and you have to be strong, you know? Yeah. I mean, the world is gonna throw curveballs at you all of the time, and you're gonna have to navigate through that. And mm-hmm. you know, it's exactly what I tell my kids now, you know, it's like, so, I mean, and, and with that being said, you know, I, I look at the obstacles that I've come through, and I think it's nothing compared to what some of the women and girls across the world are going through, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I saw this profound interview with Malala, mm when she said she woke up one morning and the Taliban had taken away the right for education for girls. And I think about that, and I think as many obstacles and hurdles, and as much as being told you can't be a neurosurgeon because you're not a white male, and that stung, you know, and and so many of those things, but still, I'm so fortunate Mm. to be in the United States and have that ability to go to school you know, and I, and I, and so, you know, one of the big things that I have on my docket for the next 10 years mm. is really trying to help these women and, and girls to really elevate themselves and get their education in these underserved areas. Mm. So it's been a, a really big thing for me. Anywhere, like locally and abroad or in a specific location? I mean, right now we're doing this international outreach. Mm. So it's really about looking at these places that are very remote mm. Um that you know they're looking to be trained in the U.S. and then sent back mm. to work. Um, so what does that mean? They don't have to become board certified, or or do they like you go all the way to become board certified and then go back, or how does that? You work? would be, you would basically well, and every country has different specification for boards. Okay, India is different, Middle East is different. Yeah. So basically, you would come to the United States to do a portion of the training and then go back wow. and finish out in a home program and then you know operate. So that, there's a lot of communication between other programs like international programs yeah. then oh wow so that's great work that's that's you know the next 10 years for me leveling the playing field it's really about taking people that don't have the advantage giving them the advantage and then allowing them to go back to their home countries and provide that good service you know yeah. that wasn't available the access that wasn't available so you know that's that's really what drives me that's my purpose it's yeah. You know, wanting to make sure that, you know, every female child or woman, you know, has the ability to go get their education. And it's not um, it's not a privilege. It's a right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I'm excited to, to see what the next 10 years are going to be like, you know. Yeah. The disparities are mind boggling um, with the. Like, you know, specifically just like the amount of things that we waste at the hospital, Um, you know, providers might open things just in case of an emergency and those emergencies don't happen and in the trash they go. (laughs) Um, And very rarely there would be, you know, uh, anesthesia providers, surgeons that might collect a trash bag full of things that might be open but unused and they would go back and do these mission trips. Um, But why isn't there... A an ongoing um, 
maybe protocol of like, hey, there are places that could be using these things. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, the fact that we have disposable laryngo, you know, laryngoscopes, uh, video laryngoscopes like that are disposable these days um, is mind-boggling. Um, the fire department I used to work for. We would just sandy wipe, mm, <laughs> yeah, the the blades, um, and uh, that was right around the time where uh, we started getting dispo, um, yeah, disposable blades. It's insane. It's really insane. And when I went to India, especially, I realized just you know how enormous it was. I had a patient that I was operating on in India, and they had an incision. It's called a bicoronal incision. So essentially, from ear to ear, mm. and. Um, I had to close it with one stitch, the mm. entire incision, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. One glove. Yeah, one, one glove, <laughs> one set of gloves, one stitch. You know, it's like, can you do it, you know? And um, so you just realize, like, how wasteful we are in the U.S. And, you know, the hospital in India didn't even have air conditioning, you know. And yeah. so we're so privileged to work in the United States and have all of these, you know, bells and whistles. Do you, and, do you pass that down when you're training someone here then? I do. I, you know, and I also am very careful about what I use in the OR. Mm. I typically don't have them open a lot of nonsense and mm-hmm. extra stuff. You know, mm. it's like, please don't open three packs of sutures. Like, I will tell you exactly what I need, wow. you know? And, and so, in fact, somebody the other day at the hospital said, wow, Dr. Dewan, we're so excited that you cost save for <laughs> us here. <laughs> but it really, it's not even so much about the cost. It's about like the waste, you know, yeah. it's like, I don't need this entire pack open. I will tell you like the six things I need. So, um, you know, I, I think like, I think that's really important. And, and, and in fact, one year, this is many years ago, we actually did what you were describing. We saved all of the extra supplies and we yeah. sent them to India. Yeah. So we did that one year. Um, but again, it was kind of a one-off for us. And I, and I, I think that I would, what I would like to see is that we do that more often. I'm constantly throwing stuff out. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I would be happy to, you know, uh, be part of that process of like, let's start collecting for, yeah. for providers or places that uh, could be of use, could, could use them. Um, wow. Um, I do want to touch on your mom. Um, what exactly did she, what, what did she do here? I haven't heard too many, uh, who's first generation? Is she first generation or are you first generation? So I'm first generation. You're first generation. Yeah. Um, she, she was the, what, highly ranked like academic PhD and she would go abroad and, and what did she do? And, and I guess, yeah. So what did she do? So my mom was a political science professor. Yeah. So she had her PhD in political science. And um, she actually had three masters. So she had a master's in Indian studies. Um, And so she basically, her thesis and her PhD thesis was about looking at the Indian diaspora. So essentially all of the non-resident Indians that have left and and kind of how, where they have been located and what they're doing with their lives. So the master's was here? Uh, She did. um, Yes, she did one of her master's here. Yeah. So... Um, she used to take her students on field study trips to India Mm. and show them India. And they were really profound trips. You know, these people would come back just transformed from their experiences. Um, This is 20 years ago. So our traveling around globally wasn't Mm. as common. Mm. And, um, you know, she was really, when her aneurysm ruptured, she was kind of at the peak of her career. Oh, wow. She was 49 years old. Um, 
she had just been nominated Woman of the Year. Mm. The Chicago Tribune had just done an article on her and, you know, she was at the top of her career. She was very active. She was on multiple charity boards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one fine morning, she develops a you know, severe headache and gets taken to the, op, you know, the emergency room. And that's where she was diagnosed. And that's kind of where the story started with, you know, Dr. Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really night and day, I think. And anyone whose family has been affected by neurological trauma or stroke I think there is a clear before and after. Yeah. You know, there there is the person who you knew your whole life or what I had known of her my whole life up to that point. And then there's the person afterwards. You know? um, and this can be how they function on a day-to-day as well as maybe sometimes personality changes? I think it's both. Okay. You know, I mean, she very much changed cognitively. Mm. She was a voracious reader. She mm. had written her own book. Um she had a very hard time concentrating after the stroke, mm. even now, you know, even now she's only finished three quarters of my book because it's very hard for her to process and come back to it. Um, you know, one of the things about neurologic trauma and neurologic injury is that from the outset, the person can seem very normal. Mm. So you look at a person in many ways and you can't see the deficits. Um, and I will say with her, I mean, she's come such a long way. I mean, she's, you know, functioning, driving, doing everything, but she never went back to her profession. I mean, she just, she couldn't. Mm. So I think there is this clear before and after that happened with her, the person who I knew, the person who she became. Um, she was incredibly independent, driven, ambitious, and you know, she became more docile, more pensive, mm. more, you know, let my dad do a lot of things for her type of person. So, you know, um, what did she do? Did she, she, so she didn't go back to work at all. And what did she, she didn't, she retired. Interesting. Yeah. She retired. And, you know, at that point just became more vo- small volunteer positions here and there. And, but she couldn't, I think from a stress standpoint, just couldn't do the things that she was doing before. She couldn't lecture for four hours or, mm-hmm. you know, take a, a, take a group of 50 people on a field study abroad. And it just, it's her ability to do that. Wasn't there. Have you guys, uh, had conversations about what we what she wishes she could do you know sometimes and in the beginning she went through this why me phase you know (laughs) and she'll say it i mean she's very open about it and she'll say you know for the first almost two three years it was why did this happen to me like why have i become like this and but then it kind of transformed into you know, being a grandmother and being with her grandchildren. And so I think it kind of meandered naturally in some way. So coming to a sense of gratitude for being able to be a grandmother? To be able to be alive. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I yeah. think it became, a, why can't I have a full career? Why am I so dependent on everybody else to, I'm living. <laughs> you know, I have yeah. a pulse. I can be with my family. I can be a grandmother to my grandkids. I can see my daughters get married, you know? So I think it yeah. really transformed for her. It's tough. I, my, my parents, my dad just retired, but his identity is very tightly wound to work. And, uh, you know, he's only been retired for, you know, maybe not even a year. Um, but he doesn't have any hobbies. So it's, it's interesting seeing him maybe find himself again. Um, or his identity was also closely tied to his kids, but now his mm-hmm. kids are grown and independent. 
what now? You know, go, go find what you, what brings you joy. Right. Um, and as much as our kids want to be seen by their parents, I think our parents want to be seen by our kids too. And I hope she knows that you see her right in all her glory. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. She knows it, you know, and, um, I think the book was really hard for her to read the very beginning part because I think, you know, she was in such a state, she didn't really know the effect it had on everybody else around them, mm-hmm. you know, everybody else in the family. And so I think it was kind of cathartic for my parents to read the book mm-hmm. um, and my sister and um, kind of go back to that time, which was you know, probably the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with in my adult life. Yeah. So um, what other effects did it have on your dad? Did he have to give up work at all for a little bit or? No, he continued on, okay. you know, doing what he was doing. But I think, you know, for a woman who was very independent, yeah, um, she became very dependent, Sure, you know, and that was, I think, a big change for him yeah. because, you know, it's, it wasn't really the person who he had known, you know. How, um, if, if it has, has it shaped how your parent um, your three kids, as far as how much emphasis you put on cultivating meaning through work? Yeah, I think the kids, they realize that I do meaningful work. Yeah. I mean, they go to the hospital, they see patients, they've rounded with me. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had patients deliver flowers to the house or chocolate or the ones that I've known. Um, they see the letters that people write me. And um, so I think they know what meaningful work is. It's, you know, my thing with them is I want them to know that no matter how busy I am, I'm always there for them, mm-hmm. just in the same way that my parents were there for me, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, it's if I called my, my parents at two o'clock in the morning and said, I need you, mm-hmm. it wouldn't even be a question. They would be over, you know, and that's the type of um, upbringing I want them to have with me. Another way to balance life is to have as many different facets of your life overlap, have they come on, in addition to rounding, but trips abroad? Yeah, they have. They have. They go on trips abroad. Um, I think it's wit- I, witnessing these disparities as a young kid that, it is, that can help shape your perspective, it too. It is. You know, and I, and I, you know, I, I grew up in the Middle East, mm. so um, interestingly enough, I was born at in Illinois Mm. and we moved to South Korea when I was I was you know young and and then we lived in the Middle East for a long time and then moved back to the U.S. and so I kind of saw this global perspective of Mm -hmm. you know how women were treated how doctors were you know what doctors were they were men they were women Mm. Um, I've taken the kids to India so they've been able to kind of witness it and you know one of our last trips they had gone into kind of more of like a slum type of area you know and where people were living in shacks down by the river. And this is when we were in South India when I was on my charity, Mm. doing a charity work. I brought them with me. And, you know, it was interesting. They didn't really process it or say anything about it until we came home. And, and, you know, they said that that was really sad. You know, that was that one room was their house. And so they try to find a place for it, you know, in their heads. And, you know, and I, I really encourage them to, look beyond what they know, you mm. know, and look to do work in the world globally and internationally and, you know, yeah. touch people's lives and be connected. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure you also get comments here and there of, uh, well, there, there's so many people locally that need help. And it's just like, well, you know, 
you can only do so much and you try to utilize and leverage the skill set that you have with your purpose and do good through that through that vessel and it's hard to save everyone right it's even as a healthcare provider it's like you can't save everyone you can do your best um, but that's just not realistic mentally how has that taken a toll of like what we're currently experiencing with the migrant issue um, in Chicago. Do we even have the bandwidth to spend time acknowledging, thinking about it, or it could be the Ukrainian war or the Palestinian conflict? Like, do we have the time to like, just think about it or we already have a full plate? Yeah. It's such a great question, you know, because I go back and forth about that all of the time. You know, I feel like, I want to know more. And then there's this part of me that says there's so much to do here that, um, you know, even in Chicago, Mm. you know, so I think not being ignorant of what's going on around you is the number one goal, right? You can't turn off the news and say, I don't want to know about it Mm because it doesn't affect me Mm -hmm. because it does, (laughs) you know? And so I think ignorance is not bliss. I think, um, you know, we can't be ignorant about what's happening in the world. We are voters. We have a voice. And, you know, we need to be involved even politically to know who we're electing into positions, you know, mayors, aldermen, you know, down to those levels, the people that support our causes and the things that we want to do in our cities and our mm-hmm. homes. So, um, you know, and that's one thing I learned a lot from my mother, her being a political science professor. It mm-hmm. was, you're a voter. You have a voice. And, you know, you need to know what's happening around you. Mm. Um, So, you know, I think the downside and the hard part, especially with some of the wars, is just seeing the images and, you know, what's on social media and how that affects you, you know, from a brain standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, because we are so interconnected and there are cameras in places, that can be really hard, you know. Yeah, I think that's that's all you can do is, like, not be ignorant to it and – to me, it's like realizing what's in your control and uh, your family, your work, um, charity, anything outside of that um, is within your control. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, I guess it's like if you find yourself consistently outraged um, without an actionable plan, is it doing any good? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I would say you have to put, you know, action behind words. If you have mm. the words and you feel strongly about something, I think put the action behind it. And, you know, and I, and I think there's ways to do it with organizations. There's ways to do it, even grassroots, you know. Um, you know, one of the things, and on a smaller scale, was when I started with women in neurosurgery, we had all these voices, strong voices, powerful voices, but nobody knew who we were, Mm. you know? And so I took on starting the social media for women in neurosurgery Mm. and, you know, became the chair of the outreach program, got the word out, you know, about who we were. Mm. And so I think you have to take steps. If you see something that, you know, isn't right or something that you think could be improved, um, I think it's important to kind of challenge ourselves to do that. Yeah. You spoke about your 10-year goals. Any like one to five-year goals? <laughs> <laughs> so um, 
I actually have another book that's going to be coming out. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, yeah. So Cutting a Path came out in May and it's very excited. Um, I have written another book. It's actually a children's book. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, it's a middle grade fiction book about a female tiger uh, growing up in the jungles of India. And it's about this tiger and how she experiences poachers and deforestation. Um, and I actually started writing it when you know Tiger King had kind of come out. I wrote it before that, but then Tiger King had come out. So it's kind of explosive, you know. Um, but anyway, this book is really special to me because I wrote it with my kids. Oh, amazing. So my kids are my co-authors on it. And oh, my goodness. It's illustrated. Um, so, you know, all of the characters and the stories and the storylines and the character arcs are all thought of, of their, their brains and it's all processed through them. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that book. We're just putting the finishing touches on it. Um, and hopefully it'll be out in probably late 2024, maybe 2025. Amazing. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. It made me think of, um, Someone else who's been on his, he's a local urban historian, um, Sherman uh, Dilla Thomas. Um, and uh, he said something in the episode along the lines of don't check people you haven't been checking on. Um, in relation to the crimes that's been going on, it could be like just mobs of kids going through downtown Chicago or people stealing catalytic converters um, and, or just, you know, carjacking people, uh, porch pirates, like those, like just those things, crimes committed by sometimes, most of the times under 18. Um, and you know, we're, we're talking about the police not doing anything or, and you know, with the police, them not being able to do anything because these kids just keep being re-released. Um, and Sherman's response to that was, you know, have we been, have we been checking on these people, on these kids, uh, at a, at an earlier age, you know, it's, um, and so writing a children's book, uh, planting the seeds at such a young age will leave a profound impact as they start to think about what they are interested in. Yeah. You know, do they want to be writers? Do they want to, you know, but then, you know, I'll come back to, you know, what we can give these underserved kids, Mm. because I mean, you take one of those kids and you invest in them mm. with their education and food and clothing and shelter and even just the basics. And I mean, what they're going to be able to do is remarkable, mm-hmm. you know, and I wish we had more organizations that invested in our kids and their education. Um, so, you know, I'm excited for what the future brings for, you know, for my family and, and my kids and their goals and, um, and writing a book and, you know, being authors and kind of seeing where the world takes them, yeah. you know, but I want to give them all of the experiences. They've actually been on book tour. My daughter came oh, with me to so New cool. York and we did a talk. I did a talk at Lenox Hill yeah. in, in Manhattan and she came with me and it was just wonderful. How, how old are, were they at the time? Uh, so she's 13. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good age. And, you know, she flew out there and got to experience it. And um, there was another conference in Chicago, the Women in Medicine Summit. Mm. There was a book signing. They came there. And you know, so I want them to be a part of everything I do, all aspects of it, you know, to be able to really decide for themselves what do they want, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, it's nice to hear that um, in the sense of sometimes we get phone calls for the EMT class from parents and sometimes it seems like the parents are more interested than the kids. <laughs> and uh, it's just trying, I remind them like, well, you know, the kids should be just as interested, if not right. more interested in, in, in this stuff or whatever they want to be. And all we can do as a parent is provide the opportunity. Yeah. Um, so to bring it back to neurosurgery, I guess one, one question I really wanted to get from you is just, uh, you know, why, you know, when you're, as far as surgery, um, why specifically neurosurgery instead of, let's say, cardiothoracic or ortho or plastics or ENT? Like, what about neurosurgery is it that that you aligned with? I think, um, you know, I was just fascinated by the brain. Mm. The brain was just this awe-inspiring organ, mm. you know, everyone's, you know, your thoughts, your hopes, your dreams. And being able to operate in the brain, it's just mm. fanta- almost fantastical. If you think about, you know, Harvey Cushing, who was one of the first neurosurgeons who documented his findings, and he learned how to use antibiotics. And, you, you know, you, you start looking at these neurosurgeons that have gone through time and realizing just what pioneer pioneering work they did. Mm. And it was a leap of faith, you know, for so many of them. And people didn't believe in them. People thought they were crazy, you mm. know, and but they did it and we you know have them to thank for all of this knowledge that we have and so um you know i think it was the brain really okay. it was neuroscience okay. it was just this fascination and also i think wanting to do one of the hardest things that i could push myself to do sure so um and i think that's really what it that's really what it was and it still is you know i mean i think now i do work in the brain work in the spine you know um, spine surgery, I think, was something that had never been a huge interest for me going mm. into neurosurgery, but it's a part of the training. And, you know, somewhere in my career, the spine surgery aspect was fascinating with the robotic technology and endoscopic. And I do a lot of my work minimally invasive now, you know, through small tubes. And and it's just fascinating. You know, you can take out a herniated disc yeah, I gotta you know? send my, my buddy your way. He he, on a on a what seems like a weekly basis, gets steroid injections in his back. Mm. Um, and I know he doesn't like take the time to rest, which could be helpful. But uh, I wonder if surgery is an option. Um, if he's open to that. Yeah, I mean, happy to see him. You know, see a lot of patients who are looking for, you know, both non-invasive and invasive options. You know, and yeah. kind of talking to them about all the things that they have. And um, so I think. I think, um, you know, with, with neurosurgery specifically, it's just, you know, the passion for the brain, the passion yeah. for technology, the passion for advancement. Those mm-hmm. are my big drivers. Have you thought about, um, from, the, from the emergency medicine standpoint, what pre-hospital providers could be doing more um, to improve outcomes by the time they arrive to the ER? Or is it just simply recognition of a potential stroke? Is that, or and is there any other type of assessments that they could, outside of the stroke scales, that they could be performing to give more details, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I think a very quick, simple neurologic exam, yeah. you know, would save lives. It, it's really, you know, there is a story that from early on in my career, I had a, a young girl who, um, had gotten into a biking accident mm. and she, you know, had, had got into this accident, riding her bike, no helmet and had gone home and started vomiting. Um, EMS were called, you know, by the time she got to the hospital, she was, her pupils were, you know, they were basically asymmetric. And at mm. that point 
the minute the pupils are asymmetric, that's the time for the action, mm. <laughs> you know? And so I think pattern recognition, you know, and the time, by the time her pupils became, unre- you know, asymmetric to the time that she became obtunded or basically mm. in a coma was, you know, about 15 minutes. So pupils are a pretty late sign? It, they can be. They can be. They can okay. be. But I think, you know, that's the recognition. It's the same thing with strokes, you know, and you yeah. see these signs for stroke. It's make sure you get them to a hospital. Are they a candidate for TPA? You know, yeah. what's the next step? Um, when you say stroke scale, um, is uh, the Cincinnati stroke scale su- sufficient? That's typically the one we use. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I know there's so much more when, when neuro is called down for a consult and there's like so much more, but I wonder if any of that would have been helpful in the pre-hospital sense. Um, and I think a lot of the work comes from not only recognizing the stroke, but transporting to the right, to the appropriate facility. Yeah. And I, that's, that's what I tell our students, whether it's cardiac and going to a cath lab or neuro going to a stroke center, um, and, you know, you know, differentiating comprehensive versus primary, like that's what separates a good EMT from a great EMT. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. Um, is there anything else you would like to share that we haven't touched on Dr. Dewan? Oh, let me think. Um, no, I can't think of anything offhand. I think we've had a really nice conversation, and I really thank you for having me here to yeah, come chat with you and talk about the book and um, goals. And I think, um, you know, I really hope that this conversation is inspiring to people and helps them look at their own lives and their capabilities. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're incredible human beings. We have incredible thoughts, we have incredible dreams, we're so capable. And I think if there's one takeaway from this conversation, it's that we all have the ability to do incredible things. We just have to believe in ourselves. Mm, Nothing's impossible. Nothing's impossible. (laughs) I've proven it. (laughs) Where uh, where can people find you if you want to be found? So you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Sherry Dewan. I'm also on LinkedIn. And if you want to send me a message, you can go to my website. Uh, Very easy. It's www.drsherrydewan.com. And if you'd like to buy a copy of the book, you can do it on there as well. It's a good book, guys. Great book. Um, Thank you, Dr. Dewan. Uh, For everyone else listening, stay curious. Thank you.